a Podcast One production. Welcome to Be A Man, the Enemy Within episode. Gus Wallen here. Dr. Happy, how are you today? I'm a good man. Yourself? Very well. The Enemy Within, I suppose, for someone like me, without all the uh, professors and doctorships like yourself, it's sort of, you know, that very, very strong-willed voice between our two ears telling us how things are, and sometimes they don't tell us the truth. And that's what we'll be talking to Joe Williams about today. Yeah, well, that's the title that our guest came up with for his uh, movement, in a sense, and his book, which we'll hear more about, uh, which is going to be fascinating because he's the epitome in many ways of the tough Aussie bloke, a footy player, boxer. And then he's come out and spoken about mental health, which historically people would have thought is weak, but I think we'll find out today that that's just another example of how strong he really is. And we've spoken so many times in, in this particular podcast series about telling people how you feel and that being awkward initially and goes against the stereotype that a lot of Aussie blokes think they are. But once you do share your problems, we find that uh, more likely to be able to get some sort of fix on it. Oh, look, without a doubt. And uh, I think especially in the circles in which he's lived his life in rugby league and boxing and, and the Indigenous community, we're speaking out as a man probably hasn't been, well, definitely hasn't been encouraged. So um, it's going to be fascinating to hear uh, how difficult it was for him, but hopefully also how, how therapeutic and helpful it's been. Well, as you say, he's an NRL player, former. He, I reckon he's looking that fit. He's probably sweet to go now. He's scattered by the Roosters and he played for the Rabbitohs as well, the Panthers and the Bulldogs. Also been a professional boxer. He struggled with negative self-talk uh, and that began in his early teens. And as you said, he sort of he was the perfect Australian stereotype, an Indigenous man. And uh, we now know he was going through all sorts of dramas. We've got him on the line right now and we're so pleased to have him because he's just written a book which is an absolute ripper called Defying the Enemy Within. And we want to talk about all those things this morning with Joe Williams. Welcome to the Be A Man podcast, Joey. Hey guys, how we doing? Mate, we're very well. You must be very proud of the book, Define the Enemy Within. Give our listeners a, a bit of a snapshot of what that's all about. Oh, mate, ex- extremely proud. Um, from the opening or the, the get-go of first initially starting to write it and then through the process and then to where it is now, it's I get hundreds of messages about how certain tips in the book are actively helping our community, which is something that I've lived with for a long time as far as, you know, living and, and, and abiding by these values or, or laws that I push into my life. Um, it's helping other people, which f- for someone who's had a lot of self-talk right throughout my life, um, you know, I'm doing something right. <laughs> Maybe we could just go back to the beginning, Joe, because I guess in the early days when you were younger, you could say you were living the dream. You were in the country playing footy, loving footy, and then got scouted and brought to Sydney to play professional footy. So, you know, that must have been pretty exciting in the early days. Living the dream from the age of probably 13, mate. You know, I, I signed my first scholarship contract with the Roosters at the age of 13 when Arthur Beetson scouted me. So, and with that comes, you know, your tracksuits and your, your T-shirts and, and all the really important stuff for a 13-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was living the dream. I was thrust onto a, a light that where, where I was going to be a rugby league player um, for my life. So I guess what unraveled over the, the following years, uh, when I say unraveled, I mean that it, it came to the surface. It was probably always there. Um, but but it came to the surface and how I attacked and, you know, learned to silence those negative voices. Um, that negative conversation is something I'm really proud of uh, now today. 
When Artie Beetson, of course, is a legend, one of the immortals, uh, comes a-knocking and thinks you're pretty good and you get all the, like you say, the T-shirts and the bags and all that sort of stuff, how long from that 13-year-old boy living the dream was it before you started to realise that perhaps, hey, um, I'm in a little bit of trouble here? How long did that take, Joey? It was when I was 13. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, it was what I can remember around the similar time frame. I had a massive concussion that knocked me completely senseless um, where I lost all, you know, memory and recollection for about a week and, and that's when the confusion and the dialogue started talking back to me. Um, you know, there's always a dialogue and everyone's got a dialogue, whether it's the self-talk on a positive measure or even on a negative measure in a lot of today's society of what we see. But, you know, that negative talk really started to rear its head at around about that age and... Put it this way, if we think there's stigma about now uh, in speaking about mental health or a voice that rings deep in our ears, think about what it was like 20 years ago. There was no way in the world that I wanted to speak out about this. Um, Of course I should have, but I felt silenced, I felt under attack and I felt judged. Realistically, no one had judged me if I came out and I spoke about it. But it was a, you know, a point in my life where I was... I was petrified. I was, I was scared. But I look at that time, and I I thought that everyone went through it. It's just that uh, I thought mine was a lot worse off than what everyone else's was. You've spoken a few times about these voices in your head in the conversation, and you've called it the enemy within. And what sort of things were you saying to yourself? And why didn't you ask for? Why was it so hard to ask for help in those early days? I think why it was so hard to talk about it is because. You know, 20 odd years ago, there's no one speaking about mental health. When you talk about mental health 20 years ago, you were deemed as crazy. You were, you were a madman. You know, when we, when we speak about mental health institutions, only the crazy people went there. So I, I didn't want to speak about that in fear of being labelled that. And for me, you know, it, it, it was a tough time. It was, it was tough experiences. Um, and how I explain it to people, it's something that second guesses and questions every move that I make every single day. Um, if I get up and I look at myself in the mirror and you look at yourself and you question, do I look okay today? You know, does this, uh, this outfit suit? Everyone has that conversation, but mine had a barrage of voices just flying back to me saying, no, you look terrible. How dare you walk outside like that? To the point where it got to me wanting to take my own life, you know, because that's what the conversation was telling me, that I wasn't worthy. I was I was so low that I didn't deserve to be here anymore. That's a conversation I've had in my head since about the age of 13. And was that, uh, I don't put words in your mouth, obviously, but there aren't many professions or jobs where your performance is assessed at that level that a professional athlete is, you know, there's thousands of fans and commentators and journalists who are assessing every minute detail and every mistake you make. So did that exaggerate that, do you think? In that field, um, you know, you're judged and assessed every single day, you know, of, of how you perform on the training paddock. When you're not performing, then maybe you're not deemed to, to be good enough to be in the team that week. So you're assessed every single day with that. So, why I felt that I had to silence it is because I was fighting so hard for my position that I didn't want to give anyone else any excuse for me to not be selected in the team. So I would silence that. And for a long time, how I silenced it was through self-medication. It was through alcohol when I was a young kid. And then uh, later when I 
moved to Sydney down to the bright lights, it was through prescription and recreational drug taking. When you're actually, especially with the prescription drugs, you know, it's quite a valid thing to go to the doctor, get some tablets and take it because someone's been to university for years and they've looked at you and said, yes, these will help you. Um, was it easy for you to get the numbers that you needed to do what you needed to do? Like, there's a real problem in this society with prescription drugs now. Yeah, it was probably a lot easier back then as well um, because we didn't realise the height of the problem. It wasn't an issue for me to look the doctor dead in the eye and tell him a lie for me to get my hands on those prescription drugs. Not because I'm a liar, it's because my addiction is telling me to say that. So for me, I had to get as much and as many as I possibly could to put myself completely out of it. You know, if you're struggling with a crook ankle or a, or a bad knee, you're trying to dull the pain a little bit, then, you know, you, you talk to the doctor about that. And there were many times that I over-exaggerated the fact that I needed painkillers and over-exaggerated the fact that I couldn't sleep in order to get those prescription meds off those doctors. Hmm. We've spoken about this issue before and we know that, uh, and, and I know that you don't mind me saying this, that at certain times of your life, the antidepressant medications were very helpful. And I think you've even said they saved you. So we both know that the medications in an appropriate use can be helpful and save a lot of people. Um, but I wonder if also the broader issue here with medications and with alcohol is this general idea that depression, say, or mental health is something that has to be fixed. And I've struggled with this concept over the years because as a clinical psychologist, I was trained to help people. But as someone who suffered depression, I've come to question whether it's something that can be quote unquote fixed or also this idea that we've got to fight it, that it's a battle because I, I don't know if that's necessarily the best idea. And I know you talk about defying the enemy within, but do you think it is something that can be fixed or is it something we've got to learn to live with? Or For me, um, it's not about wanting to fix it. It's more about um, learning to manage it. And with my illness over the years, the day I accepted that it is in my genetics and has been since the day I was born and will be until the day I die, then that's when I started to heal. A lot of people don't realise that because they, they're, they're in the fight every single day and when they start to get well, they think it's disappeared, it's gone, they've beaten it. And then the next day it comes back again and then they're at rock bottom and they feel that they're a failure because they haven't beaten this illness that's attacking their brain and their life every single day. So for me, you know what? Every single day, no matter where I wake up, whether I'm at 2% or whether I'm at 92%, I just build on that. Uh, and, and that's been my biggest healer. I guess that's what I was referring to because I guess, like you, I think for many of us, whether it's depression or anxiety or whatever sort of mental health we're talking about, if that's inherently part of us, then if we're fighting that thing, we're fighting ourselves. I can't help but wonder if that's necessarily um, you know, self-defeating or unhelpful in some ways. But if we can find other language, other ways of thinking about it, so rather than fighting ourselves, we're managing part of ourselves, trying to find the best in ourselves. Um, I think that's what you've actually done, knowing knowing about your story um, you know, and, and using different language like that, I think can be quite helpful. One of my biggest taglines when I very first started speaking in schools and around the place was, you don't have to beat it, you just have to manage it. When I'm speaking in conferences or when I'm talking to kids, I don't say I suffer with depression or I don't say I suffer with bipolar disorder because our language is everything when we're talking to people. If they're hearing that you're suffering, then they've got a negative connotation straight away. So every time I speak about it, I say I struggle because I do struggle that's not a lie, I, but it doesn't mean I suffer, you know. So suffering is something you choose to do. 
You know, you can choose to suffer or you can choose to not suffer. So, you know, in my tough times, yeah, I struggle and I struggle with the best of them. But you know what? I'm finding that positive uh, way to, to describe it rather than negative way. Joe, just listening to you and, and now knowing it's 2018, it's just so wonderful to have you here. But you did have an attempt at your own life back in 2012. Can you tell us about that? It's coming up to May this year. May 27th this year, uh, I should have died six years ago. Um, but for me, uh, I was lucky to survive that attempt. And, you know, a lot of people have asked me, Joe, what was the thing that stopped you from doing it? Was it a thought or was there was there a, you know, a thought of your children or your family that stopped you from trying to take your own life? I sit here and, and I tell as open and honest as I can, I tried to do absolutely everything I possibly could within these two hands to not be here anymore. Something bigger than greater than me kept me here. Um, you know, I had an attempt on my life and um, quite frankly, I shouldn't be here. Um, something bigger and greater than me, as I said, kept me here. And for me, it's about learning why. And that's the purpose in life, isn't it? You know, everyone can struggle through life. When we find out why we struggle, that's when we start to define what our purpose is. So Joe, you went through that yourself. Unfortunately, you've come out the other side. What advice could you give to anyone listening to us now when you're in that suicidal uh, feeling? You know, Gus, the hardest thing is, is that I knew everything what to do. I knew to reach out to people. I knew to talk to people, but I couldn't do it. You know, in in writing my suicide note, I put it down and I moved my phone out of the road. I moved my phone out of the road where I had 500 numbers in there that I could have picked up and called anyone to help me. And they would have been around to my house in a heartbeat. Hmm. But you know what? When we're in those grips, we can't do any of that. No, it's not through not wanting to. It's through that's what stigma is. Stigma isn't out there, the, the outside world of people judging us. Stigma is our mind convincing us that that's what people will do. So stigma comes within. Stigma's not out on the outside. Second to that, for me, as much as I try to keep quiet, my behaviours were showing otherwise. We try and hide these we try and hide these behaviours so well, but when we are so mentally unwell, our behaviours start to show. We start to disengage from community. We, 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 we don't call people back. We don't text people. We start to drop hints and you know on social media that we're not doing too well. Instead of waiting for somebody to reach out to you, reach out to them. Mm. You know, suicide prevention and wellness starts around the kitchen table. Starts in our family home. Starts in our sports team. Starts in our in our workplace. When we, how many times have we walked past someone who we can physically see not doing well? You know, we we shouldn't be waiting or relying on people to reach out when they're in tough times. Because you know what? From someone who sat there and danced with the devil and been on the the, the absolute tiptoeing on the edge of death when it comes to suicide, I couldn't reach out to anyone. As much as I wanted to, as much as I knew to, I couldn't reach out to anyone. So we need people to reach in to us. I agree. But what I guess what I was going to say is that when I'm going through those periods, I'm lucky enough to have people who do try to reach in, but I push them away or I ignore uh-huh. them or I don't respond. Yep. So yep. You know, it's fine to say that other people should reach in. But um, if those people are getting pushed away all the time or if, if we're not letting them in, there's only so much they can do. 100%. Because people say that all the time. I've spoke to my son. I've told him that I'm here. I've I'm, I'm told him that 
I can always help. It's just about planting that seed. Always keep planting that seed because you know what, Tim, you know yourself that when we're in those tough times and we don't think that we can call anyone, if 10 people have said, Joe, here's my number, Joe, come around to our house and and want to take us out for coffee, those practical measures, not putting it in your hands to help yourself, me putting it in my hands to help you. Come on, mate, let's go for a walk. No, I don't, I don't feel like going for a walk. Well, can you come and help me do this? You know, because we never want to let our mates down in that situation. I say to people, listen, I've got to do something for this footy team on the weekend. Can you come and help me? The best bit of advice I've always been given um, is simply ask the question, what can I do to make it better? Because we think that everyone judges us. When we say, what can I do to make it better? It flips the coin. Everything's in our language in how we speak to people because the people that we're speaking to think that we're judging them anyway, even though we're not. So it's about just show some kindness and and watch our language and how we deliver. Well, I, for one, are glad you are here, and I know many other people are glad you're here, Joe. Uh, We've talked about the tough times, but what I also know is that there have been some fantastic times since, and you've really done an amazing job of turning your life around, and not just turning your life around, but helping many, many hundreds, if not thousands of other people through the work you've done. So maybe if we can go back to that turning point, or what was it that helped you start to improve your life, that helped you get on top of those struggles to start to defy the enemy within? You know, when a doctor looks you dead in the eye and he says, Joe, you shouldn't be here anymore. You had a second chance at life. What are you going to do with it? So that hit me right between the eyes. And for me, I made a promise to myself that every single day I wake up, I'm going to be grateful for it. Every single day I wake up, I'm going to make a positive impact on someone's life. Now, it took me a couple of years to come out and be public about those positive impacts on people's lives, but I went behind the closed doors and improving my life by improving other people's lives. The values that I speak about in the book, which is love, care, respect, and humility, compassion and empathy in those as well, um, that's how I help people. You know, we live in a world today where it's so easy to judge. I don't sit back and I don't judge people because I know that people are fighting a battle I don't know about. So uh, I treat them with compassion and empathy and try and help them heal in their battles. Yeah, I saw something the other day about um, just be kind because you don't know what people are going through. It's not hard, is it? It don't cost you a single cent to be kind to someone. Well, that's why I don't understand it, Joe. Like, I know you, I know the doctor here, and I know me. I try my absolute darndest, and I'm sure you too, to be as nice as possible. You know, sometimes a bit of a smart-ass trying to be funny or whatever it might be, but it comes from a point of, you know, wanting to make the place better and the people around me better. I just don't understand why people don't want to be that way and how much influence they have. Well, Gus, I do understand why they, they don't because they're coming from hurt. They're hurting. They're, they're battling behind the closed doors that we don't know about. You know, they've got an angst and a fear and an anger and a poison that's deep within them that that then, um, you know, pushes their negative behaviours onto other people. So, you know, every single person who comes across negative or if I sit back and I'm observing people's behaviours and they're always angry and, and down and upset and just bossy and bitter towards people, I think to myself, what's going on there? You know, what's happening behind those doors that we aren't saying about? And it's usually some sort of hurt or pain or trauma that they're going through that they just haven't accepted and they just haven't had the work 
to heal those traumas. That's very, uh, very yeah, understanding nice. of you, Joe. Um, what about the times when it's easy to be kind to others sometimes, but what about self-kindness, self-compassion? How have you learned to do that? Yeah, it's, uh, that, that's, that's my biggest, uh, biggest hurdle uh, because it's easy for me to be kind to other people, but once the cup starts to empty out, that's when you start, one, to be negative towards yourself, and then once you're negative towards yourself, your behaviours then start to uh, show in, in a physical nature towards other people. So first and foremost, we have to keep our cup full. And I learned that very early because it was after my second WBF title fight in Wagga, I was just helping, helping, helping. It was when my journey with depression initially first came to light, and I was helping people giving myself, giving myself, but I wasn't looking after myself. And that's when I ended up as my second stay in the psych ward because for me, that's how critical it can get. If I don't look after myself and I start to bottom out, then, you know, it gets a really, really dangerous place for me. So how do you do that, Jay? You talked about keeping your cup full. What? Give us some specifics. What do you actually do on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis to look after yourself? Yeah, I'm an Aboriginal boy. Um, so for me, I'm lucky enough to be connected to a culture that has been non-Indigenous mandated for 65,000 years, but we know it goes a hell of a lot longer than that. Um, So the times when I'm not well, I go out and I do certain practices that my culture enable me to do out in the bush. Um, I guess people call it earthing these days, these buzzwords of where you go and connect to the earth. Our people have been doing that for 100,000 years, you know, because when we walked around, we didn't have shoes on. And what we know about the earth is that the healing powers within the earth, the healing energies, you take it on board, you know, when you connect, um, you know, your skin to the earth. So for me, it's about going bush and it's about sitting in nature and listening to the birds and listening to the trees and connecting to the old people, to the old ways of how my people used to uh, interact with each other every single day. So for me, culture is is my biggest healer without a doubt and making sure the people around me know those things as well like I've got my wellness plan and for me in my family home they might say you know Joe it's time for you to go and do some training or it's time for you to go bush and and connect a little bit because I'm starting to kick stones around the house you know so (laughs) um you know we're the ones who notice it last recently I I went out and I said, look, I've just got to go. I went out bush for a couple of hours. And I live in Dubbo. I'm based in Dubbo, so there's quite a lot of bushland around. And I was sitting in a really, really dark and deep place while I was out there, but it just started to disappear moment by moment, minute by minute. I sat out there for a couple of hours, and when I come back into the house, I just burst into tears, and I said, I'm so sorry. You know, looking back at my behaviours, it's not acceptable because we're the last ones to notice it when we're making everyone else be punished around us um so it's it's important then for our our loved ones to be tipped up and to be in on you know what makes us well beautifully said mate um head injuries from footy and boxing left you with a brain condition how does that impact your life because you're working on so much stuff and as the doctor said you're doing so much for everyone else how do you just manage that (laughs) it's tough well let me tell you i bet um I, I come into the studio this morning and uh, my notes in my diary weren't very thorough. So I sat here and I knew it was with Dr. Tim Sharp and I knew it was with Gus Wallen, but I had no idea what we were talking about. Um, and last night I knew, 
but this morning... Gus doesn't usually know what we're talking about, so it's all <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I wing fair, it normally. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, so it affects me every single day. Like, like I, I woke up this morning and I said uh, to my fiance, I said, where are we? What day is it? Like, this is something I, that I go through every single day. I, I laid down next to my daughter when she was three days old. And Frankie's now, you know, you know, five and a half, close to six months old. But I laid down next to my daughter when she was three days old and I had no idea who that girl was. You know, I sat there and I just bawled. I bawled my eyes out because I didn't recognise the kid. I didn't I, – I had no idea her name. Um, so this stuff, this stuff impacts on me every single day and – then you have a think about that. Like, if I don't know where I am, if I'm missing appointments and, and, and like, I don't know my daughter's name, then that's going to play on me and play in tune to the negative impact that I have in my head anyway. So, yeah. of course, it's going to say, you know, uh, the negative dialogue that I've got, well, you don't even know your own daughter's name, Joe. How worthless are you? Yeah. Um, so that plays and then that spirals into a depression as well. So um, it, it, it's impacted every single day. Um, but you know what? I'm so lucky that I've got a fantastic team around me that, you know, my manager, Mel, she, she lives over in Carnarvon in remote WA. So it's even harder for her to update my diary on my phone three hours in adv- in advance um, compared to New South Wales time. And I don't know how I'll do it, but I'm lucky I've got someone holding my hand doing it. <laughs> what more can we do, Joe? You and I have spoken about Gotcha for Life and you being involved in the Indigenous arm of that because the problems with suicide is twice as bad with you guys. What else can we do? Because the first thing you said to me when we spoke on the phone is said, well, I have to run it. I have to be the person that speaks to our people. We're sick of white blokes coming in saying we've got this wonderful new program. So what can you tell us about that? What can we do to help? With colonisation has come, you know, a hell of a lot of bad things or a hell of a lot of negative things for our community. So we didn't have mental illness and we didn't have suicide. What we did have was spiritual illness or a spiritual um, disconnection where our people are caught in addictions, caught with mental health problems now is that spiritual uh, misalignment. So once we start to connect spiritually, that's when we start to heal, you know, and how you connect spiritually is things like, you know, Tim, you went to university and you've become a psychologist. We've had psychologists for thousands and thousands of years. We just don't have the piece of paper on the wall with all respect to say that we are. You know, we sat around fires and we talked about things, you know, and there's so much to learn from that in our communities now broadly is that non-Aboriginal people, you know, how, how healing is sitting around a fire. Sit around a fire and you talk about things rather than having our heads face deep into phones and social media and gossiping, you know. Um, so for us, connection is the biggest thing. Connection to people, connection to country, connection to culture knowing where you are, where you belong and where you're from is three of the biggest things that we can get as Aboriginal people. You know, so many Aboriginal people have no idea who they are or where they're from because of our stolen generations. Well, I certainly feel that we've all connected beautifully today and there's also a huge amount of respect from our studio to your studio, Joe, and to 
for you to talk so openly and honestly, um, you've taught us all a lesson. And of course, the book is Defying the Enemy Within, and there'll be a second book sooner rather than later. Joe Williams, thank you so much for being a part of Be A Man. Thanks very much, guys. You know, I speak so much about how culture has been one of the biggest things that heals me, but you don't have to be Aboriginal to connect with the things that we speak about in culture. Anyone who's Black, white, green or purple connected to things like uh, love, respect, humility and care and, and, and that's just about being kind to everyone and make it infectious. Thank you, Joe. Much appreciated, brother. The thing that really struck me, and I know Joe quite well, but you know him very well, but when he said it's coming up six years in May, he should have not been around. It's an anniversary that obviously is close to his heart. To think of all the good that he's done in the last six years and... Who would have picked up that uh, all the work that he's done? Who would have done all that work? Maybe no one. So that's how precious life is, isn't it? And that's how much we need to make sure that we cling on to it with every possible last gasp. Well, one of the things we know about suicidality is um, people think about taking their lives for all sorts of different reasons. It's not just one thing, and that, that's an important point to make in and of itself. But if there is a common theme or a couple of common themes, um, it tends to be that feeling of aloneness, that I'm the only one, I'm all alone, no one will help me, and that it doesn't matter. Um, and yet we know from inevitably from almost every single person who's got through that in some way or other is that other people do care. Uh, and it does matter. And, and we've seen, um, you know, from Joe, for example, that it's mattered for not just him and his immediate family, but for literally hundreds, if not thousands of other people. And I guess if we can help people who are in the midst of that battle, uh, the people who are in the midst of that doubting and questioning, if we can help them just get through that. And this is one of the messages is you don't have to stop, just pause. And if you can pause and then get going again, maybe tomorrow, maybe it'll take two or three days or a week or whatever, that things often do look better and, and people often do care and they can see that light at the end of the tunnel again. Do you think we're a bit too hard on ourselves sometimes as, as blokes? Oh, not just blokes, but uh, but certainly a lot of us are. And again, that's one of the, um, you know, again, there's lots of causes of depression. Depression isn't just one thing, but certainly one of the, again, one of the common elements is is um, uh, self-defeating, self-deprecating, uh, highly critical comments we all make. We, we often, you know, for most of us, the harshest critic we will ever face is ourselves. Um, and for most of us, those harsh criticisms are, are unfounded. <laughs> that's, um, but at the time, they seem founded. At the time, they seem totally valid. Um, and so one of the things we need to learn, one of the things I'm constantly trying to tell myself is that those voices, particularly in the darkest moments, those voices are not, they're not necessarily realistic. They're not necessarily true or helpful. Um, we need to, we need to doubt ourselves at those times and trust ourselves at other times. If this episode caused any concerns, please contact lifeline.org.au or give them a call, 13 11 14. The Be A Man podcast series is presented by me, Gus Warland, and my great mate, Dr. Tim Sharp, produced by the beautiful Liv Proud, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Be A Man is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes of Be A Man, head to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or look us up on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us.